Let's look at Revelation chapter 3, starting in verse 7. And this week we're going to be talking about a church that is unique in these list of seven churches because it does not have anything negative that is said about it. Uh, It is only commended, and as we have seen in the past, all the churches have things that aren't quite right. All right? And so this church is commended. It's in the city of Philadelphia. We'll talk about that in just a minute. But the thing that I want you to see here is they simply were doing what God had called them to do. Uh, I read about a conversation between two seminary presidents, and this is before one of them was a president and was meeting with the other, and they were talking about uh, important lessons in their lives. And one of the one of the uh, one of the guys was Paige Patterson, who is uh, president of Southwestern Seminary in Fort Worth, Texas. And he was just talking to him about life lessons, and he said, "This is the simplest lesson I know. All that matters in life is that you please God. Period. Just do that, everything else will work out." And so. What we have is a church that seemed to be about that, pleasing God. They didn't care about their name or their prestige or what was happening. They just wanted to please God. And so in Revelation chapter 3, verse 7, this is how it starts. It says, To the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, The Holy One, the True One, the One who has the key of David, who opens and no one will close, and closes and no one opens, says, I know your works. Because you have limited strength, have kept my word, and have not denied my name. Look, I have placed before you an open door that none is able to close. Take note. I will make those from the synagogue of Satan who claim to be Jews and are not, but are lying. Note this. I will make them come and bow down at your feet, and they will know that I have loved you. Because you have kept my command to endure, I will test those who live on the earth. I am coming quickly. Hold on to what you have so that no one takes your crown. The victor, I will make him a pillar in the sanctuary of my God, and he will never go out again. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God, and my new name. Anyone who has an ear should listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. We're going to talk this week about four things, and we're going to talk first about how Christ is characterized. And um, here's the way Christ is characterized. He is characterized by his awesomeness. Now, I grew up in the 80s. And in the 80s, everything was awesome. And that is awesome. That is like an awesome skateboard you have. All right? And awesome, and it had a companion word, which was rad. They were everywhere. All right? The scripture teaches us that the only thing in life that is truly awesome is the Lord. Because the word itself means worthy of awe or reverence. And the only thing about which anything is described as awesome or anything around that in the original language is God. And what is going to happen here is they are going to tell that to the city of Philadelphia. That God is awesome. Christ is going to say, you are serving an awesome God. You remember that song? Um, Our God is an awesome God. He's going to say that's who he is. And we're going to give some specifics about that in a minute. But let's talk about Philadelphia for a minute. Um, When I say Philadelphia, what do you think of? Brotherly love? Huh? 
Where you were born? You were born in Philadelphia? Yeah, I didn't even know that, Alan. We need to spend some more time together, apparently, as staff. You know, you didn't stay there long, right? What else do you think of when I say Philadelphia? The Phillies that the Cardinals beat in five games? That's what you're thinking about, right? Philadelphia cream cheese, cheese steak, Rocky Balboa, right? Was that Liberty Bell, Pittsburgh Steelers? Oh, that's Pittsburgh, right? Philadelphia Eagles, it's in Pennsylvania. Here's the thing. That has nothing to do with what we're going to talk about tonight, all right? This is a different Philadelphia, obviously. Obviously, he's not writing a letter to the people living in Philadelphia, all right? At least not the one here. He's writing to a different town. And here's what you need to know about that town. It was on a strategic cross-section of trade routes. And so it was a main highway connected Smyrna to it. An imperial post ran through it. And it was called the Gateway to the East. So it was the city that if you were going to go east into Asia, into China, into those areas, it was considered the place you go. And, you know, in our culture, I've mentioned St. Louis already, but we have St. Louis as the gateway to the west. The arch is the gateway to the west. And the idea was back when they were settling west, St. Louis was kind of the place you went through to start going west. Okay? Well, that's the true of Philadelphia in what is Turkey or Asia Minor. And so it was an important city. The city's name does mean brotherly love. It is the place that Philadelphia here is named after. Um, Here's the story of how it got its name. It's actually about two brothers. Uh, There were two brothers that lived there. One was named Attalus and the other was named Eumenes. And uh, a false rumor got out that Eumenes, the older brother, had been assassinated. His brother Attalus took his place. And then when Eumenes came back, Attalus willingly gave up his throne. Well, Rome liked Attalus better, and they went to him and said, if you'll just overthrow your brother, we will support you to be the leader. And he stated that he could never do that to his brother because of the love they had for one another. And so it became the city of brotherly love. Now, here's another thing about Philadelphia uh, in that era. It was always under concern that earthquakes were going to hit. Earthquakes devastated the city in A.D. 17. It was rebuilt by Rome. Its loyalty to Rome was strong. It became a fortress city. And the city was meant to be a missionary city for the spread of not the gospel, but of Greek culture. They were going to take the culture of Greece even into Asia. It had a thriving grape industry. Now, In those days and time, when you had a thriving grape industry, you mean you had a thriving wine industry. And they did. They had a thriving wine industry. In fact, the the god that they worshipped most in that city was Dionysius, who is the god of wine and partying and debauchery. All right? They earned the reputation by the fourth century A.D. of being Little Athens. It had these magnificent buildings and temples and things all around and people came from all over to see it. Now, here's what you need to know about Philadelphia. Philadelphia was a stronghold for Greek culture, but apparently it was a difficult place to get a church going. It was a place that lived constantly in fear from earthquakes. 
Have any of you ever lived in a place where it was earthquake prone? Anybody? I did. I grew up in West Tennessee uh, back uh, a long time ago. They had the largest recorded earthquake in the United States on land. Uh, Dyersburg sat right next to the New Madrid fault line. Uh, so you, you, you all know about the earthquake, right? Uh, created a lake that has the best catfish places you can imagine around it. It's amazing how those sprung up. Great catfish, bald eagles are over there. It's called Real Foot Lake. It made the Mississippi River run backwards. It was just astonishing when you see the Mississippi River and how powerful it is. But here's the thing. We lived in Dyersburg constantly aware of the fact that an earthquake could hit at any time. In school, we would not only do fire drills and tornado drills, because we had tornadoes, we did earthquake drills. What happens if you start to feel an earthquake? Now, when you think about it, it's kind of ridiculous, because earthquakes generally don't last that long, and you can't predict they're coming. But we did earthquake drills. We got to the room. Do you all know what to do when you get, if an earthquake hits? You get in a, uh, under, like in a door post, and you brace yourself, which is interesting to see 25 fourth graders try to get in a door post, right? Uh, you brace yourself or get under your desk was what we had to do. Um, in fact, I, I've told this story before, I think, but this is how fearful our, our, our area was about earthquakes. December 3rd, 1990, we got out of school because some guy predicted an earthquake was going to occur. Really? We did. He was some guy that predicted. I'm not talking about some scientist. This, you know, I mean, it was, he had some science, but I mean, it was kind of like this guy that's predicted the end of the world a couple of times. He predicted that December 3rd, 1990, the New Madrid fault line was going to have a major earthquake, and it was going to be worse than the one that created Real Foot Lake. And so the Dyersburg City Schools waded through the evidence and said, you're out of school for the day. Dyersburg City, Dyer County, Lake County. Up, uh, up in, y'all probably don't know much about Lake County, but up there in the northwest corner, we all got out of school because we were in fear of it. The people in Philadelphia would have been people that if they hadn't experienced I mean, the New Madrid earthquake happened a little bit before I was born. You know, like a hundred years. And, and the echoes of it still were there. Um, you know, we've had people go to Chile, and I imagine the people in Chile after that earthquake still think about what happened that day and kind of live in fear. The people in Philadelphia always were that way. Here's what it engendered in you. A sense of concern because nothing seemed permanent. You could build a building, and if the earthquake hit, it didn't matter. And so they constantly dealt with the unknown. And what we're going to see here is that, first of all, Jesus is going to declare to them, I am awesome in this way, and he will give them some ways that he is, and it will depend, for, or it will assure them that he is stable, and they are too in him. Here's what it says. This is how he describes his awesomeness. First of all, he talks about being a God of purity. He says to the angel of the church in, in Philadelphia, we've talked about that, right? It says, he who is holy. The actual phrase is, I am the holy one. In the Holman Christian Center, that's what it says. It says, the holy one. 
That means the pure, the separated, the utterly distinct. Separated from creation because He is the Creator. Separated from sin because He is the Savior. In Acts 3 and 4, He is called the Holy One and Just. Holy One was a familiar and foundational title for God in the Old Testament. In Mark chapter 1, they, the demons apply it to Jesus. And what it means is that He is pure, He is undefiled, He is majestically spotless, and He is without stain or blemish. The idea is whatever attribute you can say about God and completion in an absolute that is only applicable to God is also applicable to Jesus. He is the Holy One. But He's not just the Holy One. He is the true one, real, genuine, opposite of that which is false. He is trustworthy. He cannot lie or lead any way astray. He is the true Messiah, the faithful master, can be counted on at every point in every situation. You can depend on him. He is the rock of truth, the way, as it says in John 14, the truth and the life. In John, 1 John 5, 20, it says, he is the true God. And has eternal life. What he's telling them there is, anybody else is following somebody that is not true. And this is one of those places where we can get in debates with people of other faiths who say, well, all faiths can be true. Jesus makes claims that just won't hold up to that philosophy. If what Jesus said is true about him, it is true about him and him alone, and nobody else is that. He says, all other gods, all other idols are shams. Jesus is the real deal, the genuine article, the true God. You can trust in Him and what He says and what He does each and every time, now and forever. He's not a pretender. He is the real deal. Then He says He's the Lord who is the God of authority. It says that He is the Holy One, the True One. And then it says, He is the One who has the key of David. Does anybody have a clue what the key of David is? Cliff, you always bring it up the study Bible notes. Good. Yeah. Here's what happens in Isaiah 22, 22. Uh, King Hezekiah, in Isaiah 22, 22, appoints a guy named Eliakim. And I know you all had that name right on the edge of your tongue. Eliakim, you're ready for that. Eliakim is appointed as the key master or the one who can allow people to see the king or can deny people access to the king. What he is, is he's the one that says, you can go in or you can't. He's the gatekeeper. And Jesus says, I am the one who determines who has access to the king. Here's why that's important. And we'll get to this a little bit more in a minute. As we read through that, you probably noticed that he calls some people the synagogue of Satan. They're, apparently, these believers in Philadelphia had gotten kicked out of the synagogue. And they were told, you are not part of God's family. You can't worship with us. You can no longer come in. And Jesus says, they don't determine who gets to come in to the Father's presence. I do. I am the key of David, the one who holds the key to eternal life. Having the key speaks of his authority and control to admit or exclude who will come in. Jesus is the Davidic Messiah, the Savior of the world. 
He and he alone possesses absolute authority and control as to who will enter God's kingdom and have access. He alone has the key. 1 Timothy 2.5 says there is one mediator and it's no one but Jesus. John 10.9 says I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. Only one holds the key to eternal life and his name is Jesus. That's what it means when he says he has the key of David. And then it says this. He reminds them that he's the one in ultimate control. He says, who opens and no one will close and closes and no one opens. He basically says, I have the power to do whatever I want and nobody can undo it. I open the door, nobody can shut it. I shut the door, nobody can open it. It's almost like he's saying, it may seem like people are in control, but I'm the one really in control. Um, Eli is now closing in on nine years old. And there are certain days when, to use an expression uh, my dad would use, he's feeling his oats. And he thinks he can take me on. And a few days ago, he wanted to arm wrestle. So he laid down on the floor and he put, you know, come on, Daddy, let's go. I got you. And so... I put my arm in there, and we started to go. Now, here's what I did. I let him start to go a little bit, right? And he thought, I am in control. Right? I mean, you, you, some, of, some of you, have you ever seen that look? you got kids, or they think, I got him now. I'm on the way. And then, because I love him so much, I just went, boom. Yeah, right. He had the illusion that he was in control, but I was in control at all times. Jesus says, it may seem at times that they're in control, but I'm like the dad who's always at a moment's notice ready to show you who's boss. I'm completely in control. Muhammad's never had control over the door. Gandhi didn't have control over the door. Buddha doesn't have control over the door. No pope, priest, guru, cultist determines who walks through salvation's door. The door belongs only to Jesus. And He gives authority to no one. At one time that door was slammed shut. Access was denied. Cannot get in. And it was Jesus through the purchase of us by His blood and by His body that He bought the right to open and close the door at will. He is a God who is sovereign over everything. One hymn says it this way, Jesus, Lamb of God appointed, all our sins on You were laid. By Almighty love anointed, You a full atonement made. All Your people are forgiven through the virtue of Your blood. Open is the door of heaven. Peace is made for man with God. So the first thing we see here is that Jesus is shown off or characterized by His awesomeness. Here's the second thing. The church is commended for its perseverance. Rick Warren has said that a healthy church will have five basic characteristics. It will grow warmer through fellowship, deeper through discipleship, stronger through worship, broader through ministry, and larger through evangelism. And the thing is, we don't have enough here to say, well, 
all of those things were going on in Philadelphia. But what we know is that whatever was happening, it was a healthy church. This is what Jesus says. that He says, um, I know your works in verse 8. And I love this. He doesn't say, in spite of the fact you have limited strength, you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Is that what he says? Did he say, in spite of the fact you had it? What does he say? Because. It's because you have limited strength that you've been able to keep my word and not deny my name. The idea there is it is only in our weakness that we're able to serve the Lord because it is His strength that guides us. And this church understood that. It didn't matter what the name, how big it was, or how proud they were, or how strong they were. What mattered was they were committed and their life was in the Lord's hands. They had focused their energy on God's direction. God knew their works. He knew their faithful and steadfast service. That church was doing what God had called them to do. They weren't passive. They were active. They weren't stagnant. They were moving. They were moving in the right way for the right reasons. It was on the go. It was doing in spite of persecution, in spite of things that were happening. They were being pushed continually to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. They were telling people about what was happening. They were sharing who Jesus is with the community around them. Continually. In spite of the fact. No, because of the fact they were limited. They knew where to find their strength. One of the worst things that a church can do is to begin to depend on itself to do the mission that God has called it to do. We can't depend on our own strength or ourselves. He says, because of that, because you've been able to do that, there's an open door. Look, I have placed before you an open door that no one is able to close. Again, saying, listen, this is my job. They kicked you out of the synagogue, so what? I've given you an open door. Now, there are lots of things people think the open door can be. Two things that are kind of most prevalent is, one, access to the Father. I've created the door. You're able to be a part of it. The other is, I've opened the door, which is often the case in the New Testament, means that I have given you opportunity for ministry, for evangelism. I am opening a door for you to share who I am. The idea there is that the church had little strength but great potential. Had a constant trials, but Christ's word kept giving them strength. They could face consistent opposition, but they did not deny his name. They just kept working. My um, grandparents used to like a song called We'll Work Till Jesus Comes. And you know, I don't know that that spirit is kind of pervade the church in America today. I mean, and I'm not just talking about uh, retirement or older. I'm just talking about in general, people thinking, well, I'll work when it's convenient. Or I'll work when I have time. Or I'll work when family's not in the way. Or we'll work when it's not too much for school the next day. Or we'll work when there's not too many engagements that I have. To save, we're going to work no matter what till Jesus comes. Uh, my father-in-law, most of you know Phil uh, Jett, he's been around, he's preached here. Uh, there are people that think he's nuts for going to Brazil for six weeks every summer. And he told him, and now that he's married, his wife may think he's nuts and he may not be going to Brazil for six weeks a summer. But he said, what else am I going to do? He said, this is what God's called me to do. And until he decides, I can't do it and I'm physically unable, I'm going to work till he comes. 
That's the way this church was. Whatever the obstacles are, we don't care. It seems like they were only doing a few things because they had little streak, but they were doing the right things and doing them in the right way. So it's praised for its perseverance. Here's the third thing. It's promised Christ's protection. I love this little turn here in verse 9. He says, take note. Listen up. Up here. Watch. Listen. I will make those from the synagogue of Satan who claim to be Jews but are not, those people that have been persecuting you, those people that have been degrading you, those people that have been antagonizing you, here's what's going to happen. I will make them come and bow at your feet. And they will know that I have loved you. The idea is I am going to vindicate my name. I'm going to do it. It's not you, but I will. I will humble your enemies. The opposition you face is limited, will not last. There is coming a day of justice and vindication. You leave it all in my hands. Some Jews will come in conversion. Some of these Jews will come in judgment. But as Philippians 2, 10 and 11 says, at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. Those are in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. He says, I'm going to do that. You know, sometimes, um, and we've mentioned this before, you watch TV and Christians are made out to be the most um, simple-minded people you can find. They must not really. Surely you can't really believe what you say you believe. Jesus says, don't worry about all that. Don't call into the show and then make it worse by the way you act. You let me handle that. I don't mean we don't speak our mind or we don't participate, but don't worry about trying to vindicate Christ. He will do that. That's His job. Our job is to live faithfully for Him. Not only is He promises He's going to watch over them, He promises that He will protect them even in the midst of the worst tribulation. It says here in verse 10, because you have kept my command to endure. The idea there is because you have listened to my word, done what I've said, to stand up underneath this persecution, it then says, I will also keep you from the hour of testing that is going to come over the whole world to test those who live on the earth. All right? You may or may not know that this is one of the most controversial verses in all of Revelation. Because the question is, what does he mean by that he will keep you from the hour of testing. Now, there are two main thoughts on this. One is what we call the rapture, where God's people will be taken physically off of the earth before the tribulation begins. And the other is called, well, it doesn't really have a full name. It's not the rapture. That God's people will be here through the tribulation and that Christ will come again and will rescue his people at the end of it. John Walford says that if this promise has any bearing on the question of pre-tribulationism, y'all know, y'all use that word probably some other time today. What is said emphasizes deliverance from and not through and implies the rapture of the church before the time of trouble referred to as the great tribulation. So he says what he's saying here is he's going to take them physically out of the persecution. Now, there are a couple of issues with that. One is the people that he wrote this letter to never got out of persecution. Uh, the people in Philadelphia 
were persecuted until everybody that would have read this letter died. So for them, it cannot mean that it's going to physically remove them from persecution. Persecution lasted for a while. Robert Mount says that the thrust of this verse is against that interpretation. It's because the church was faithful to Christ in the time of trial that He will in turn be faithful to them in the time of their great trial. He says basically what he's saying is, I'm going to walk with you through it. I will not leave you nor forsake you. I am with you to the end of the age. G.K. Beale in his commentary has this interesting correlation. The Greek phrase here, which I'm not going to give you, is two words that means keep you from. And there's only one other time in all of the New Testament when it's used. And it's used in a book written by a guy named John, which makes it even more interesting. And it's used in John 17. Why don't you turn there with me? Keep your hand where you are. If you can, turn with me to John 17. John 17, verse 15. Well, tell me somebody that while you're there or getting there, if you remember or if you're on your way there and you see it, what's happening in John 17? Jesus' high priestly prayer. So this is um, the prayer that Jesus is praying before He goes to, to be arrested. It's an important moment. He's praying for the disciples. He's praying for Himself. He's praying for us. He's praying in this last moment. In John 17, 15, He says, I am not praying that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. Protect them from the evil one. What's interesting is it's used both times in the case of persecution. It has a similar meaning in both places. And in one place it's pretty clear that Jesus is saying, not that you're going to take them out of the world, but while they're in tribulation you would watch them through it. All right? Turn back to Revelation 3. Beale would say that the believer's endurance is based on the model of Christ's own endurance. Christ held up under persecution but never wavered from his faith. Here's the deal. Whether or not you determine... Craig Blomberg says... um, I'll get to that in a second. Craig Blomberg says that this verse in itself can't be used to teach the rapture because it's not clear enough. He says, and if you want a direct understanding of when Jesus comes back, the first time explicitly it tells us Jesus comes back is in Revelation 19, and the first time it explicitly says anything about God's people being taken to Him is Revelation 20. Now, we'll talk January about Revelation 4. But the reality is, how you interpret verse 10 is probably decided by what you think the rest of the book already says. If you're someone that believes in the rapture, you think, well, that's what he's talking about here. If you're someone that is in a different camp than the rapture, you think that's not what he's talking about here. And for this verse, the point is not to establish or not establish the rapture. The point here is, no matter what situation you find yourself in, I will be with you and I will never leave you nor forsake you. Because here's the truth. None of us want to be here for the rap- I mean, for the tribulation. None of us want to be here for the tribulation. 
But there are people all over the world right now that are. It's easy in America to say God would never send us through the Great Tribulation because we don't have to worry about stuff like that. It's harder when you go to Somalia and people are at gunpoint for their faith. It's harder when you're in a Muslim country and if you convert to Christianity, you're immediately cut off, arrested, and put on trial for death. It's easy in America when the worst thing that can happen to us as a believer, it seems, is that people can not want to come to our church. It's not so easy to talk about God taking you out of tribulation when you're getting beaten on a daily basis because of your faith in Jesus. Ms. Rachel, just the, the Greek itself, and I looked at ten commentaries today, and the best Greek scholars all say that itself refers back to John. And in John, the issue is making it through tribulation with Christ by our side. Now, some of those scholars teach a rapture, so they're not saying, they're not necessarily denying the rapture. They're saying this verse itself does not give that, what has become a full understanding of the rapture. That if you interpret it as it says it in the original language, what it says is that I will keep you safe in the midst of tribulation is the meaning of those phrases. And that's a different thing that I'm going to take you physically out of. Now, when we get to John 4, I mean, we get to Revelation 4 and other places, we can talk more in depth about it. But my point is that, and I'm not, I'm not trying to discount anybody's theological system here. My point is, the point he's making to the Philadelphia Christians because they weren't taken out physically. The point he's making to them is, I will be with you in the midst of whatever you go through. Um, and so that's the point he's making to them. So for us, who, if we find ourselves in difficult spots, in terrible places in life, we can have assurance that God is going to take care of us. Whatever that means. Right. Yeah, I mean, from personal experience, we would all say that our lives have had junk happen. Right? And we would all say that. And so the truth for us in that moment is not just that someday Christ is going to take us out of this, which I firmly believe, Revelation teaches, at some point Christ is going to take us out. Now, you, you can get in debates about when, how, where, and to what degree, but... Scripture teaches he's going to take us out of here. But until he does, we're not going to have an easy life either. And he promises his presence in the midst of that. Here's what I, I know. This book originally written to the church at Philadelphia, if that church received this letter and the persecution never stopped and they were never taken out of it, if they thought it meant they had to be taken physically out of the persecution they would have felt God had lied to them because that never happened. So that's not what they thought. I'm not saying that that doesn't have a meaning for us later, but that's not what they thought. And so for us, the meaning for us today is we can trust in the Lord's protection, but that doesn't mean that everything's going to go great. You know, I've talked to people recently, and, you know, um, some people made it through this economy stuff okay, and some people are struggling, and, 
that one of the things that they'll tell me is, you know, I've read the Bible. God doesn't promise I'm going to end up making a lot of money again. That's not in there. He said, people come to me, go, oh, you'll find something. Things will turn around. He goes, it didn't turn around for Jeremiah. It didn't turn around for some of these believers. And the truth is, believing that somehow everything will get better, that's not what the rapture teaches, but believing somehow that everything will get better and we won't have to worry about it, that is not New Testament Christianity. That's American Christianity. And we just have to have that assurance from the Lord that, man, I am with you no matter what. Now, as we move through Revelation, some of those questions will become more and more um, fleshed out about what is being taught here. And so, you know, it's one of those things that we can't do a full theology of the rapture tonight because we're talking about Philadelphia, but we'll get to places where it begins to develop. Now, in John, he's talking specifically about the disciples, those twelve. And so he's talking specifically about these guys, and they did. They all died. Except for John, who we're reading, they all were killed for their faith. And he says, don't take them out. I mean, at that point, Jesus could have prayed, Lord, when I'm taken to heaven, you just take them. But that's not what he says. He says, don't take them out, but in the midst of it, protect them. This is where it comes, as believers, it's important for us to realize that I told this illustration in a completely different way at Union when I spoke Friday at chapel. And the kid, and I've told it here before too, but the kids thought it was funny about that. Um, the kids, you know, like the college kids, those, those hip guys. Um, they all thought, what's this older guy doing here? Um, it's like we have to remember we are on this earth for a very short period of time. And whatever tribulation or trial or difficulty we have, is going to seem like nothing on the other side. And I told the story, I told this a few weeks back when I was talking about, or this past summer when I was talking about living generously, about um, it's like we've moved into this Motel 6 and we don't like the decor and so we spend our lives redoing the decor of something that ain't going to matter. Like we've moved into the Motel 6 for a week, and at the end of the week, we've completely redone everything in that room, and then we leave the room behind. And we spend our whole time getting it ready. Our lives are like that. Now, it seems like a long time for some of us, and there are some weeks when it seems like a long time. But Jesus promises it's, it's only momentary, and I'm with you. Here's the thing he promises them. We'll finish with this. He challenges them to, to push forward and to keep going. And, and he tells them these really cool things. He says, I'm coming quickly. Now, again, we have to remember the Lord's timing because he said that 2,000 years ago, almost, 1,900 years ago. Hold on to what you have so no one takes your crown. So, so be faithful. And then he says this. I love this image. I will make him a pillar in the sanctuary of my God, and he'll never go out again. He tells those people who have been thrown out of the synagogue, no one will ever be able to throw you out. And then he gives this mental picture because there are these um, stories and drawings and different things of places that were devastated by earthquakes. And the only thing standing were the pillars of the city. And he gives them this image they would have had in their mind of seeing places like that devastated and seeing the pillars standing strong saying, 
You are the pillars in my house. That doesn't mean we hold it up. That means that we are firmly planted there. Nothing can take us out. And in case they didn't get it, he says, you'll never go out again. You're in. And then he says, and then I'll write on him the name of my God. That's whose you are. That's who your God is. The name of my city, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven, and my new name. Somebody has said, the name signified who my God is, where my home is, and who my Lord is. I belong to the Father. Heaven is my home, and Jesus is my Lord. I bear the signature of God. As a believer, that the phrase of, of, of Romans 8, 38 and 39 comes back. He says, neither death nor life, angels or principalities, things present to come, powers, height, depth, anything else be able to separate us from Jesus Christ our Lord. He's saying that no matter what junk you go through now, I'm coming and you're mine. At Southside Baptist Church in Dyersburg, Tennessee, we had a rotation of songs. We had hymnals, but you didn't need them because we sang the same three. We had four orders of worship, and they rotated until Christmas came, and then we rotated them again starting January. That's the church I grew up to. I was five. It's a little country church, and one that one of them on that list had a verse that I love that said, "Onward to the prize before us." Soon His beauty will behold. Soon the pearly gates will open. We shall tread the streets of gold. When we all get to heaven, what a day of rejoicing that will be. When we all see Jesus, we'll sing and shout the victory. What He says to him here is, you just keep pushing forward because that day is coming.